to the book of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. As we continue to walk through the book of Matthew, uh, we have begun the Passion Week. We have begun this, this journey closer and closer to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're entering into this discourse between Jesus and the religious leaders. He has just spent the last, uh, the last chapter and he's had several parables. He's cleansed the temple and then he begins teaching in these parables. And he has told the Pharisees and he's told the Sadducees basically that everybody that you look down upon is going to enter the kingdom of God before you. And that sat real well with these religious leaders, these pious, these, uh, these, these men who, who thought very highly of themselves, who thought very highly of their, their ability to garner favor with God. And so this is the setting that, that we come to in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read verse 15 through 22 this morning. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he had said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought to him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled. And leaving him, they went away. Let's pray. God, as we open your word here this morning, Lord, may you speak to our hearts. May you convict us of our idolatry. May you convict us of our selfishness. May you spur us on to obedience. Or may you draw us to yourself. God, may you speak through your text this morning and through this broken vessel. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. What's my prayer today that as you leave this place that you will leave with a renewed desire to submit your life fully unto God. We live in a world today that is, that is, that is riddled with idolatry that is riddled with with things that that sneak into our lives without us even realizing they have snuck into our life and take precedence in our lives and take priority in our lives and before we know it we are giving ourselves we're giving our mind we're giving our time we're giving our energy into these things and to this stuff into this world that is fleeting and that is falling away and God continuously warns us in his word to avoid idolatry and to flee from idolatry. And yet idolatry is the one thing 
that, that sneaks into our lives without us even realizing that we have begun to worship and idolize the things of this world. And sometimes, oftentimes, they are good things. Oftentimes, they are necessary things. Oftentimes, they are things that God has put into our lives to bless us, to encourage us, to bring us joy, to bring us happiness. They are, they are gifts that God has given us. But what happens in our lives, because we are sinful men and women, and because we, we lie and cheat and do things that, that, that are wrong, those gifts that God has given us, those gifts that God has given us throughout our lives, become the object of our worship rather than the giver of the gifts. And so... As we look at this text this morning, we're going to come back to the theme of idolatry. We're going to come back to the theme of idolatry. But I want us to understand how Jesus is addressing it to both the Pharisees and to the Herodians here in Matthew chapter 22. Now I want to point out that at this point in the story, at this point in the narrative of Jesus' life, Jesus has, he has challenged the status quo. Remember just a few weeks ago, he walked into the temple, he overturned the money change, the tables of the money changers, and he drove them out of the temple. Now this is a practice that has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Since the Babylonians destroyed the temple and, and there was a rebuilding of the temple by, by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they came in, they rebuilt the temple and they reestablished temple worship in the exilic period. For over 500 years, there has been this practice of, of coming in, changing the money, we're buying, buying uh, sacrifices and, and worshiping there in the temple. And Jesus walks into the temple and he overturns the money changers and he drives them out of the, he drives them out of the temple. And he said, my father's house will be a house of prayer. And the one thing Jesus does when he does that is he challenges the status quo. He says, what has been going on must no longer go on. When Jesus challenges the authority of the Pharisees, he is challenging the status quo. When Jesus challenges, when, when, when he looks at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and says, the prostitutes and the, the, the tax gatherers are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. And when he gives this parable of the marriage feast and says, the Gentiles... The invitation to the gospel is going to be open. The invitation to the kingdom of heaven is going to be open to the Gentiles. He challenges the status quo. Church, in our lives, I believe that God wants to challenge our status quo. He wants to challenge the way we think. He wants to challenge the way we act. He wants to challenge the way we live. That does not necessarily mean that you need to change everything in your life. But God wants us to look at what we think, how we speak, how we live, how we act. And compare that in light of the scripture. What does God's word tell us? Does my thinking line up with the principles that are outlined in God's word? Does my language, does the thing that emanate from my mouth, does it line up with the things... That God has laid out in his scripture. Does how I live my life line up with God's word? God desires to challenge our status quo. So in this portion of the text, Jesus challenges the status quo. The religious leaders are excluded from the kingdom of God. 
whom everybody says, if anybody's going to heaven, it's that guy. Jesus says, haha, not so fast. Let's rethink some of this stuff. The prostitutes and the tax gatherers replace the religious leaders. That doesn't make any sense. The Gentiles, those who have been ostracized, enemies of God. They are now invited into the kingdom of God. It doesn't make any sense. This challenged their status quo. And whenever the status quo is challenged, whenever, whenever that which is commonplace, whenever that which is accepted, whenever that which, which we are used to is challenged, then we begin to be uncomfortable. I want to notice, I want us to notice, look at Genesis, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 22. I want us to look at verse 16. And they, they being the Pharisees, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, for most of us, this doesn't mean anything. There's these two group of people that showed up to talk to Jesus. But I want to unpack what this is right here. This is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who are, those who idolize the law, those who have kept every letter of the law, and they have even added to the law aspects of the law so that they can not only keep the law of God, but they can keep man-made laws so that they make sure that they keep every law of God plus some. And then you have the Herodians. And the Herodians really could care less about the law of God. They could really care less about the uh, nation of Israel. And they see... They see Rome as an opportunity for them to seize power. And the Herodians are those disciples of Herod, those, those followers of Herod who have, who have latched on to this idea that, you know what? With Rome comes power, comes money, comes influence, comes stuff. And if I can, if I can somehow get in the good graces of the Roman government then I become important. I become rich. I become wealthy. I become influential. And to, 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 to heck with Israel and to heck with the laws, this is a whole lot more fun and a whole lot more beneficial for me and my family. And so you have these two opposing diametrical, antithetical groups of people. You have the Pharisees who loathe and hate the Roman Empire and see the Roman Empire as, as oppressive and see the Roman Empire as, as an instrument of Satan that, that, that God will deliver Israel from. And then you have the Herodians who see the Roman Empire as an instrument for them to get what they want, an instrument for them to, to become important and wealthy and influential. And so these two groups of people Become allies. We've heard the statement, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this is exactly what has taken place. The Pharisees and the Herodians come together and they see Jesus who is challenging the status quo. As long as the status quo is maintained, the Herodians keep their power. They keep their money. They keep their influence. As long as the status quo is maintained, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they keep their influence. They keep their power. They keep their, their respect of the people. Both the Herodians and the Pharisees are a result of idolatry. The Herodians idolize the world and the things of this world. Worldliness seeks pleasure, seeks money, 
seeks things. What this world has to offer is what the Herodians idolize. The Pharisees. They idolize the law. They idolize piety. They idolize the praise of men. Power. Flip back with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I want us to listen how he admonishes the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this. He says, Beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 2. When therefore you give alms, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may honor men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. We see elsewhere in the Beatitudes, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, whenever you pray, do not be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner and pray so that all may see. But go into the closet, go into the inner sanctum of your home and pray so that only you and your Father knows what you pray. We see elsewhere in Matthew, it says, when you give, give in such a way that you're right hand does not even know what you're giving from your left hand. There's, there's the idea that, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders do what they do and they live how they live so that they will receive praise, not from God, but from men. The religious leaders idolize the praise of men. They idolize righteousness. They idolize piety. They idolize the law. The law is good. Righteousness is good. But when it becomes your God, it is an idol. It is sin. Pleasure is good. God created pleasure. God created money. He has given us the gift of money. He has placed us in this world. He has given us stuff and things. And He has given them to us that we may enjoy the world that God has given us. He has given us, he has given us the world that we live in and designed it in such a way that we can enjoy what the gifts that He has given us. But whenever this world becomes our chief end, whenever this world becomes the object of our worship, and whenever the things of this world become the object of our worship, that is idolatry. And many of you, Many of you, over these past four or five weeks, have learned the lesson all too well of idolizing the things of this world. You've learned the lesson because God has allowed them to be stripped from you. And when we hold tight to the things of this world, when that becomes our God, and it's stripped away from us, our world falls apart. Having things is not bad, church. But let us hold on to them loosely, understanding that they are a gift from God. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Let us love the giver of the gift, and not the gift. So these two individuals, these two groups of people, those who idolize this world and those who idolize righteousness and the law, come to Jesus. And they ask Jesus a question. And I want to point out that there is no right answer to this question. Look at verse 17. 
They asked Jesus, therefore tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar? Now the position of the Herodians, who are in bed with the Roman government, the position of the Herodians would say that it is absolutely lawful. Not only is it lawful, it is your duty, it is your responsibility as a Roman citizen to pay a poll tax. Remember, the nation of Israel is occupied by the Roman government. And so in order for them to receive the protection, in order for them to receive the, the, the luxury of the infrastructure that they live in, then they are required to pay a, a poll tax. It's important for us to understand that the Roman government did something for the ancient world that had not yet been done up to that point. The Roman government provided security, safety. They could trade from city to city. They could engage in commerce through something called roads that had not yet been devised like it was in the Roman Empire. While the Grecians brought us a common language, the Romans brought roads and they brought safety and they brought security and they brought, they brought an infrastructure to civilization. And the cost of that infrastructure was taxes. It cost money. To run a government. It costs money to build roads. It costs money to pay the army. It costs money to, to pay the police. And that infrastructure comes at a price. And so the Herodians would absolutely say, you pay Caesar his tax. You pay the government what is due him. However, the Pharisees believe that here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You pay no homage to any man. Israel is not a monarchy. Israel is a theocracy. We serve and pay homage to God and God alone. Therefore, to pay a tax, to pay, to pay Caesar is to acknowledge him as our Lord, to acknowledge him as our ruler, to acknowledge him as our master is akin to idolatry. And one thing that the exile did for the nation of Israel is it cured them of idolatry. For the first 1,500 years in Israel's history, they suffered with the, the plague of idolatry. They ran after the gods of the Canaanites and the gods of the Midianites and the gods of the Philistines and the gods of whatever other ites there are. They gave themselves to the gods of the people that they lived in. And once they experienced exile, once the Babylonians and the Assyrians came in and destroyed their nation, destroyed their land, and exiled them, Israel never again struggled with homage and loyalty to the God of Israel. They said, okay, we get it. We understand that if we give ourselves to foreign gods, that, that there will be consequences to pay because we have lived it. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders have gone to the extreme and say, we will give no homage to any government, any king, any ruler, any power that is over us, including we will not pay taxes. And so they put Jesus in between the rock and the hard place and they say, Jesus, do we pay taxes? There's no right answer. There is no right answer. Any answer Jesus gives will be antagonistic to one of the groups. So let's look at Jesus' response. Matthew chapter 22, verse 19. 
Jesus responds and he says, show me the coin used to pay the poll tax. And they pull out a coin, a denarius, which is the equivalent of one day's wage. So if you are making, if you are making $100 a week, this would be one day's wage. If you're making $1,000 a week, this is one day's wage. A denarius is symbolic of a day's wage of the average citizen. And so they pull out this coin and Jesus asks the question, whose image is on the coin? Church, we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship lies not in this world, but lies in heaven. However, while we are on this world, we are citizens of this world. We are required by the law to pay taxes. Even Jesus paid taxes. The saying that there are two things in this world that you cannot avoid, death and taxes, is indeed true. We are citizens of this world. And so because we are citizens of this world, we are required to live in this world. Go with me, if you will, to the book of John chapter 17. I want to point out something to you. As Jesus is literally moments away from being arrested, from being tried and crucified, he is alone with the Heavenly Father and he is praying for his disciples. And as he prays for his disciples, I want us to note how he prays. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 15, 16, and 17. <clears throat> Jesus says this, referencing his disciples. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them with truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus says this. He says, God, I'm about to be taken from this world. They are going to be left here on this earth. They're going to be left here in this world. They are going to be, they're going to have jobs. They're going to be networked with people. They are going to be living, going to the marketplace. They're going to be going to their jobs. They're going to be interacting with their family. And while it would be easier for them to be removed from this world, I am not praying that you remove them from this world, but I am praying that you keep them while they are in this world, that you keep them holy, that you keep them from the enemy. I want us to understand this, church. Jesus does not pray for isolation for his church. Do you see that in the text? Don't see this coming from a preacher. See this in the text. As Jesus is leaving his disciples, he is praying that God would keep them, that he would protect them, that he would preserve them while they are in this world. Because God has a purpose for us in this world and is not to be isolated away from this world. God has called us as Christians and he has called Christian accountants and plumbers and electricians and builders and plant workers and teachers and waiters and waitresses and whatever job you are in, God has called you to be a disciple of his and he has placed you in the circumstance and situation that you're in so that he may keep you from the enemy 
and that he may use you for his glory. You said, man, I wish, I wish Jesus would just, would just take me home. How many of you have ever thought that? How many of you have, have, have ever been going through a circumstance, a hardship, a trial in your life, and you're like, Jesus, just take me home now. It would be easier for you to take me home. It would be easier for me to, to leave this world, leave everything that this world has to offer, and just go to be with Jesus. Has anybody ever felt like that, or am I the only one? Three o'clock in the morning, whenever my kids are projectile vomiting all over the place, I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, come back now. <laughs> now would be a good time to come back. When I have a Hebrew test on Monday, and it's Sunday night and I haven't opened the Hebrew book, I'm like, you know, Jesus, if you showed up tonight, that'd be good. I wouldn't complain one bit. Whenever you realize that there's three feet of water in your house and you've got a mountain of work ahead of you, you're like, you know, Jesus, if I died in my sleep tonight, I wouldn't be upset. I'd go home to be with Jesus and everything would be great. But that's not God's design. Jesus prays for his disciples, knowing what his disciples are about to endure. Knowing his disciples are about to be persecuted, about to be beaten, every one of them without exception will be persecuted to the point of death. The only one that survived was John, and it's not because they didn't try and kill him. They put him in a pot of boiling oil and he just wouldn't die. They knew, Jesus knew what they were about to endure, and he prays not that God would take them, but that God would keep them. Because we're citizens of this world. That means we pay taxes. That means we vote. That means we vote according to the principles that are found in God's word, not according to a political party. Amen. That means we participate in PTF and we participate in our homeowners association. And we are active in the world that God has created us and God has placed us in. It means we go to football games. That means we engage with our neighbors. We live in the world that God has placed us in, but we do not worship the world that God has placed us in. I want to look at the statement that Jesus says in, John, in Matthew chapter 22. He said, whose image is on this coin? Matthew chapter 22, verse 19, they brought him a denarius. He said to them, whose likeness, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. The word image is there is the word icon. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word icon from. That Greek word also shows up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. When God says, when Paul says of God that he is the image, talking about Jesus, the image, the icon of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus is the likeness. He is the image 
of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, that by him all things were made in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and that by him all things are held together. Jesus is the icon, the image of God. Jesus asked the question to his disciples or, or, or to the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, whose icon, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. Jesus said, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God. And I want to understand what these Herodians and what these Pharisees would have heard because when Jesus said, whose icon, whose image, they would have heard that God created man in his image. Genesis chapter 1. Says then God said, Let us make man in our image. And he created the male and female. In Genesis chapter 2, and he breathed life into them. You and I are created in the image of God, in the icon of God. We bear his likeness. He is in us, and all of us bear the image of God. Every man, every woman, every child. From the moment of conception, we bear the image of God. Before we ever take a breath, we bear the image of God. Till our last breath on this earth, and when we leave this earth, we bear the image of God. We are image bearers. We carry the imago Dei, the image of God. And as we carry the image of God, we are His. And so we cannot give To someone else what is rightfully God's. And that is what the author is saying. That is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, giving gift to Caesar, everything that's in this world, because it's all his and it's all going to burn anyway. But give to God that which is God, which is you. Give your soul, give your service, give your homage, give yourselves to God the Father. We cannot give ourselves to this world or the things of this world. We are created in Him, in His image. And while we live in this world, while we are citizens of, of this earth, we have dual citizenship. And our primary citizenship resides in heaven. Therefore, because we are His image bearers, we must give God His. And we are His So here's the question I leave us. Does God have our allegiance or does this world? Do the things of earth have our allegiance or does God? Do our 401ks, do our retirement accounts, do our children, do our family Do they have precedence in our hearts, in our minds, or does God? There's one way to know what we idolize. And it's to fill in this blank. If I lost blank, my world would fall apart. If I lost blank, if I lost my job, 
if I lost my family, if all of a sudden this was taken away from me, my world would fall apart. Whatever this is, that is your idol. Jesus said, render unto God that which is God's. You are his. Your children are his. Your grandchildren are his. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God. Let us hold loosely to the things of this world. Because this world is fleeting and passing away. Let's pray. God, may you convict us this morning of that which, with which we're holding too tightly. May you convict us of our idolatry. May you remind us that we have been called to be set apart in this world. But we have called to live in this world. And as we live in this world, may we love you and serve you wholeheartedly. God, may you spur us on to righteousness. Not for righteousness sake. But may you spur us on to righteousness that we may be ambassadors for you in this world. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's never given their life to Jesus, may today be the day of salvation. If there's someone here this morning who vitalized righteousness, the things of this world, Lord, may today be the day where they confess their sin, find forgiveness and grace and mercy. Or may you speak to us this morning. May you strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.